It's one thing to argue about what tax policy should be, labor, the environment, gay rights, you name it. It's another thing to say two plus two is four. Oh, no, it isn't. That's what George Orwell was really writing about in 1984. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. You know, there's a glut of news out there. I mean, it's coming from every place. It's coming from the Internet. It's coming from television, Twitter. You know, what do you believe? Everyone's a journalist. Anyone. You don't need a communications degree. You know what, Gina? Judy and I remember from the Wayback Machine what it was like to sit in a newsroom, wait to be assigned a story, sent out on that story, stuck in whatever outer burrow you were stuck in for the whole day, having to write the story, come back to the station, do stand-ups, and then stay in the edit booth until you finished it. And then all of a sudden it was 10 p.m. and you started at 9. Yeah, I've never seen any place as close to the front page, the movie and the play, as Channel 5 News used to be. I mean, it was rough and tumble, but we're reminiscing, Lynn. Yeah, but you know what? That's the fun part of it, because that's what news broads do. That's who we are. And I got to go back to the Channel 5 newsroom. It was legendary. Mark Monsky was the news director then, and he ran it literally like a blood and guts organization, (laughs) right? If it moved, it was news, unless, you know, it was a tragedy that he didn't want to cover. But we had some fascinating gets, some fascinating breaking stories, And it was the people who covered the news were really hardcore New Yorkers who told the the stories of New Yorkers in a way that nobody else in this city could. Well, and they were, were, you know, the FCC was telling them that they had to be correct. Fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. But with, with consequences. Yes. These consequences are not around. So if someone... You Bumps got it. a little, then guess what? There was no opinion news, Gina. It was, if there was opinion, they had to state it. At the end of our show, we had something called Offit and Aban. These were two guys, two old guys who would go at it. One was a liberal, one was conservative. And as they were doing that, it was always about their commentary. And you had to let the audience know that you had one side representing the liberal and the other side representing the conservative. How far away from that have we gotten? Well, I think this is what's so great about our podcast today is that we're talking to Jeff Greenfield, who really has been in this for so long and has really great insights. And he... We start off, you know, talking about the current state of journalism, which, as we have just mentioned, is very different from even when we started. Jeff Greenfield, by the way, is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous media analysts in the country. He worked for ABC, CBS, uh, CNN, you name it. He's now at PBS and he's written 11 books on the subject. So the point is, Jeff's been around. He's covered the news, but he's covered the people who do the news Uh, and his views on where we are in journalism, where it's going, is it dying or isn't it, uh, are fascinating. It it is certainly true that newspapers or or print versions of them are dying almost by the week. Cable TV rating, news ratings are actually up mostly because of Donald Trump. But then there's this whole other area where I think we really don't know how much new journalism might blossom from that. You know, we've got a place like BuzzFeed which is best known for listicles, but also has tried to do long-form journalism reporting 
even from from uh, foreign countries, we, we're seeing the possibility of new forms of journalism emerge. There's so much content. So I think I, I think we really don't know. It's almost like we're back when the Gutenberg Press was about 20 years old and nobody could quite figure out what that would lead to. So I, I wouldn't hang the crepe just yet and assume that it's all dead. So what would that definition of journalism right now be as opposed to what it was? Well, it's certainly true that the barriers to entry in one sense don't exist anymore. Uh, you know, the fact that you can be your own editor, right. the fact that you can create your own website, and if it catches on, goes viral, suddenly you move from working in your parents' proverbial basement to having a couple of million followers and figuring out how to monetize that. Anybody can start a podcast. Yeah, and, just look at us. Listen to, <laughs> listen to okay. this. And every once in a while, so, you know, something clicks. I can't define it. I certainly can't tell you how it happens. But it suddenly becomes a national or even international phenomenon. Here's what I don't understand. You're right. It's the Wild West out there. And some people are going to win and some people are going to lose. And it's a different kind of economic structure. But without gatekeepers, traditional gatekeepers, who had some commitment to both sides of the story, there are people out there, the Lenny Riefenstahls of the world, who are putting out propaganda. There are crazies out there who have followers. How do we know who and what to believe? That's probably the hardest question of all to answer. First of all, there haven't really been gatekeepers for a very long time in the tra very traditional sense. I mean, I'll give you one example. If you go all the way back to, say, the 50s and, and, and 60s, there were gatekeepers. There were a certain limited number of television network news outlets and a certain limited number of, quote, mainstream respectable publications whose editors would decide, as the New York Times slogan has it, what's fit to print. That gradually began collapsing. And if you think about how the Monica Lewinsky-Bill Clinton affair was covered, the kinds of topics that were talked about that leached into the mainstream press would never have been aired a decade or two earlier. Now, there's no walls, there are no doors, there's no roof. And so the only way to vet that is to bring some sense of media literacy to it. And one of the problems is, there's a fascinating piece I read a week or two ago. This fellow created a very popular website deliberately to make fun of fake news. Mm. He would print the most outrageous, ludicrous, obviously false thing, and he would tell people on the website, I'm making this all up. And had he had a whole bunch of followers who believed with, that what he was writing was true. So he would send out a picture and claim that, uh, I don't know, I think the example was Michelle Obama and somebody else was at some weird event. And, tell, and the pictures were obviously not of Michelle Obama. Right. And yet the reporter, the, the writer of this piece, went back and found consumers of this website said, oh, no, that is Michelle Obama. Right. And that's one of the one of the huge dangers we have is, look, there have always been a large number of people who believed ludicrous things. I think the number is that a, a hefty percentage of Americans believe the moon landing was faked. So the fact is that the nature of what's out for consumption now is just multiplied geometrically. But and it's a real problem. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. It is a problem. When you have somebody uh, who is the president of the United States and supposedly the most powerful man in the free world claiming fake news when it comes to news that he doesn't particularly like, is that are we feeding that or is he feeding us as far as journalism? It's cause and effect. Mm. Uh, what, I mean, what I mean by that is that this appetite to believe what is untrue has been around for a long time. As I said, Paul Krugman has a piece in the New York Times about climate denial, and that for political reasons, a, a, a certain significant minority believe 
that it's all a fake. What the president has done is to amplify that. And obviously, to the fact that he is the president of the United States and, and has followers who will believe pretty much anything that he says has made the problem that much worse. And what also has made it worse is that there was a time when even members of a president's own political party would push back and say, no, 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 this isn't right. Whether it was Democrats fighting Johnson on Vietnam or Republicans pushing back on Watergate. And because of the president's enormous popularity within his own base, although that may be shrinking, his own party, the people who know better, are just disinclined to say, no, uh, Mr. President, with all due respect, this is just wrong. It's interesting, Jeff. You know, we got here in a in a funny way. I guess the way that this has been able to happen was the revolution, as you pointed out, that maybe was as big as the invention of the Gutenberg press. The economics just changed with news. I mean, journalism was mostly supported by advertising dollars. Right. You could make money with newspapers and television networks. And news by the 60s and 70s and 80s became huge profit centers, <clears throat> certainly in television, which they are no longer. And with all the advertising money going over to online, people are cutting back. The news that Look, flourishes yeah. online, um, where there is any money to be made, is a different kind of news. I had read that the online magazine Slant pays their journalists 100 per month plus $5 for every 500 clicks on their stories. How does yeah, well, that change journalism? You know, it changes it fundamentally. And, you, and Judy, you make a really good point. There was a time when local news, local TV stations and a monopoly newspaper in your town was, was called a license to print money because you went to a newspaper, for instance, for all different reasons. You went to get the baseball scores, the stock market reports, uh, classified ads the high school lunch menu for the week, and news. It was all bundled. And one of the things that the, the new media have, has done is to disaggregate. You want classified ads, you go to Craigslist. And, cra and classified ads were a huge profit center for newspapers. You want the ball scores, you go to ESPN or any one of 100 websites. And so the business, which used to finance, say, investigative reporting off the backs of advertisers who were trying to reach an audience, that dynamic, with very few exceptions, has ended. Now, it's interesting that in the, and I think partly because of Trump, legacy places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are finding that you can, in fact, make money digitally, not through ads so much, because advertisers pay very little for digital ads, but people will pay to get news. And that's one of the big unanswered questions is how much information are consumers prepared to pay for? Every day I get pitches from every magazine known to, to mankind, right? from Vanity Fair to Forbes to Web saying, sign up for us for, uh, I think the LA Times is offering introductory prices of a dollar for three months just to try to get you hooked. But Jeff, here's a depressing question for all of us, especially you and me. Those of us who grew up reading these publications and enjoying news from a reading perspective will transition to online. But will the next generation, those people who have not grown up reading online, will they actually pay up? They're not used to paying up. And they may well, not, I hate to say it, be as literate. Or they, or they might not have to. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if information is coming from everywhere, I worry about these smaller ones as well. I grew up in a, in a small town in Ohio, which had the Oxford Press. And like you said, it, it probably made ads off classified and all this stuff. But 
it's gone. So my worry is specifically on the local level of what are the consequences of this less local reporting? Is this a gateway to corruption on the local level? Or is this, I mean, who's policing that then? I share in this sense your depression because in the absence of local news outlets, the powers that be in City Hall or the state legislature uh, are, are much freer to behave without scrutiny. To the first part of the question, I spent a week at a small Ohio college a month or two ago doing a lot of different classes and conversations. And when I asked how many of you read a newspaper, either online or in print, the answer is very few, except if you go to the leadership kids, the ones who are already committed to an interest. Right. I mean, there is a split here between the average younger person and then this small forerunner group. I don't know if you saw it a couple of months ago on the Today Show when uh, Jacob Sabarov was at UCLA and he just ran across a bunch of 30 kids waiting for a bus and he asked them, hey, how many of you are going to vote? And one hand went up. We're with NBC News and I'm just trying to figure out, is anybody here going to vote in the election on November 6th? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody's going to vote? We're like the most unreliable voter demographic, mm -hmm. so I should vote to like increase those numbers, you know? Well, that's what the Democrats want. <laughs> but they can't count on you guys necessarily. No. You know, they either believe it doesn't make any difference or they're all corrupt. And part of what stimulates civic engagement is an early exposure to information. Now, there are people who think we're going to enter a post-print age. People will get this information via video. I don't know how, many, how, how much you know about Snapchat. Those of us with do. kids know, <laughs> certainly. But their political director who came from CNN, a guy named Peter Hanby, puts out kind of two-minute and three-minute pieces about the Supreme Court or about the elections. And I guess his consumers get that information that way. But is that training us to consume our news in a different way? I mean, our attention spans obviously are getting shorter and shorter. Our needs for news, there's so much of it now on the internet. You can go to any one of 100, 150 different sites worldwide now to get your information. Is that changing us or are the times, um, are we catching up to the times? Like I, as I said, uh, you know, I, I don't think this has begun to really play out, but I think the consequence of what we're seeing in some weird way is, is a throwback a couple of centuries. When newspapers began, at least here in America, they were largely funded by the political parties and there was no such thing as objectivity. The coverage of the 1800 election simply depended on whether you read the papers that backed Jefferson or the papers that backed John Adams. And it was the development of mass information, wire services, and newspapers and radio stations that profited by appealing to everybody that brought the notion of a kind of neutral or objective journalism into play. Now we're at a, we're at a place where a lot of what we consume are essentially versions of pamphlets, or what you learn depends on what you believe in the first place. And one of the disturbing things for the legacies is there have been social science experiments that show that if you take somebody with a firm belief and show that person contradictory evidence, the person will redouble on his or her original beliefs. So that the theory that, you know, that sunlight is the best disinfectant, that information will bring you to a closer sense of reality, that may not be true. You did not answer the question. I did you, answer no, your question. No, you did not. You did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire 
White House press office no, it on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative facts? Do you believe that the media has lost what originally it was meant to be, which was to educate and inform? I think it depends on what you're reading. One of the things I do believe is that if you are a kind of sophisticated consumer, there's more good stuff out there than there ever was. Not just the legacy newspapers. Depending on how committed you are to civic debate, you pick up the New York Times editorial page and you pick up the Wall Street Journal editorial page and you're getting two very different views. I like to believe that the newspapers of those, both those papers, are closer to an attempt to say, look, here's what we think is going on. The problem is that there are all kinds of outlets, whether you're talking about Fox News or to, to a great extent MSNBC or to the various or Breitbart News or the Huffington Post, you're getting news from places that have a pretty committed political view. And it, it seems to me you have to know that. And f even in that context, figure out where the news is coming from that still has a respectable info base. I read the National Review regularly. It's a committed conservative news uh, magazine, but I basically trust their factual reporting on which they base their conclusions. When it comes to a place like Breitbart or Hannity, I don't. It just seems to me, Jeff, you're reading those and I mean, a more educated group of people are reading those. But then we have all the people who watch Sinclair and Fox and MSNBC, and we're all rooting for our own teams, as you rightfully pointed out, the way it was hundreds of years ago when the newspapers were run by political parties. With cable going all politicized, and with local TV now under the reign of consultants who say weather, traffic, and crime, because it's cheap, and they don't have as much money, and they don't make as much money. Therefore, local news outlets, which once at least provided some news, I like to think since I worked there and Lynn worked there, we did some news along the way. People no longer get it from that. So are we all in different tribes right now? And how will we come together again? Well, the first thing I have to say, because I didn't work in local news at all, is that the, the commitment of local news to a kind of uh, consultant-driven offering. I mean, I remember that back in the 70s, big time, with Frank Madgett and his people. And here are the teams and happy news and happy talk, have the weatherman flirt with the sports reporter or whatever the hell it is. That's nothing new. Yeah. But I do agree that occasionally in the middle of all that dross, you would find some serious investigative work. And that's the point. Investigative work costs money. I mean, look at CNN, which is one of my, I'm an alum of them. It's much cheaper to get six people around the table talking than it is to send a reporter and camera crew out to cover what's actually going on. And CNN, because of the Trump factor, is going to make, made last year and will make this year more money than it ever made in the past. Its profits are over a billion dollars. So what's the incentive? I was just going to say incentive. So so is journalism dead? I mean, is that? No, no, no. Okay. No, so no, give no. us some hope. Thing, <laughs> no, what it is, is it's going to be, I think, a situation where a certain clique, a certain niche is always going to want to see real reporting and analysis, which is why the Wall Street Journal and the Times and the Washington Post and, for instance, The Economist yes. uh, do very, very well off people willing to pay for it online. The Economist is the most boring looking publication you could imagine. If you design something to repel the, the gaze of a, of a reader, that would be it. And yet it does great because its readers trust that it's getting solid information. I also believe, I think it's always dangerous to sort of adopt this pastoral that once upon a time, 
there was much more civic commitment. I mean, my notion is back in the day, first of all, you, you make a point about the newspapers. Back in New York, when it had seven daily newspapers and the news boys, I guess they would, would go, what do you read? They meant if you bought the then liberal New, York, liberal New York Post, you got one view of the world. And if you bought the Journal American, you got another view of the world. Right. My feeling is that there will always be, or at least as far as the eye can see, a market for really good, solid journalism. I, I also think that basically what we're talking about is our processing information. We're all hungry for information. Whether it's when you wake up, you want to know what the weather is. When you go to another city, you want to know, is it safe? We always want information. We seek that. What's happening now is because we have so many choices as to where to find that information that it's a little bit daunting. And and there's not as much money as there was when you were starting out, when Judy was starting out, when I was starting out. And I think yeah. people who are in the business are learning to acclimate to it. But I'm not so sure if it's the same business it was when we started. I think that's absolutely dead on analysis. And the big question that we keep grappling with is the whole theory of a free press is the basis of the First Amendment theory is you need free, unfettered information for the citizenry of a free country to make choices. And the people who wrote that First Amendment were in the middle of that period I talked about when the press could not have been more unfair and partisan. So the question is whether or not a reasonably large number of people are going to be willing, if not eager, to absorb what we would consider genuine information. Uh, there's an example right now, by the way, of what a really committed journalistic enterprise will do. The Miami Herald spent a year investigating why Jeffrey Epstein, who apparently committed all manner of just horrible sexual crimes against underage girls, was able to get away with kid gloves treatment, a very short sentence, coddled imprisonment, his record essentially expunged by a guy who was now in President Trump's cabinet. Labor um, Secretary. Acosta. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Acosta. Now, it, put, it took, think about how much money that took to spend a year putting your reporters who are on your payroll onto that one story. And I can think of other examples. You know, the New York Times will send a reporter into the Congo for weeks to expose the machinations of a local warlord. That's not going to change anything. Congo's not going to suddenly become Sweden because the Times covered it. But they had this commitment. And I think that's going to survive in some media outlets for a while, a good long while. Given that the fourth estate was created by the framers of the Constitution to really report on and allow the first three estates not to get into trouble. We were there, and I use the word we loosely, as another check on our government, of a government of checks and balances. And if there will be a diminished, as you have pointed out, might happen, a diminished number of people looking for real news, real substance. Where does that leave the democracy, not in our generation, and maybe not even our kids, but at two generations down. I, you know, I lack the uh, ability to see that far into the future, but mm. one, oh, of the, one of me. the, <laughs> one of, look, I don't know where I'm going to be in, in eight hours. So, you know. <laughs> but, but what I mean is one of the things that we're being, that is in fact being tested right now is the theory is that if the people know the facts they will act on those facts. And what we haven't yet seen is a situation where facts are exposed and either the facts themselves are simply are just ignored. It's like I say, look, two plus two is four. And somebody says in a way, no, that, my alternative fact is that two plus two is five. Right. Because it's one, it's one thing to argue about 
what tax policy should be. Right. What, ought, what ought we to do about labor, the environment, gay rights, you name it. It's another thing to say two plus two is four. Oh, no, it isn't. That a fact is that, wrong. Yeah, that's what George Orwell was really writing about in 1984. Right. I think that's the, the division that you're seeing. And especially what you mean, you've got a lot of Twitter followers, over 50,000. 58,000. 58,000, closer to 60,000. Right. You get a lot of that on Twitter. And I feel like people are looking for the facts to substantiate their own belief systems as opposed to looking at the facts as the facts because they need the right information. And I think that's what that's where we are in a lot of ways. I represent probably the most uh, important uh, client I've ever had with regard to the future of the United States. Yes, because he's been, I think, a great president. You feel like he's truthful? I, I believe he's truthful, yeah, as, as, as much as you can be in a world in which every single word you say is, is picked apart. And if you say four and it's actually five, they claim you're lying. Uh, uh, let me just give you one, one small example to, to confirm your point about Twitter. So I wrote at one point when Giuliani was going off on one of his things said you know this isn't the, this isn't the Giuliani that I remember as mayor of New York and I got hammered by people you know he's always been a racist he's always been now and what I would say well let's take a look you know what are the facts about Giuliani when he was first mayor he was very pro-gay rights very pro-gun control endorsed Mario Cuomo for governor over the candidate of his own party was very sympathetic to the idea of undocumented immigrants and something changed and my Twitter followers said, no, 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 that's not what happened. He's always been the worst person in the world or something to that effect. So that even and, – and you, by the way, are uh, – and then you fill in the blank about what I am. So the idea that you try to present any kind of nuance – and look, there are things on Twitter I've learned, don't try. Don't do irony. Don't do nuance. Don't, for God's sakes, do something in, in a sarcastic way because as I wrote uh, just a day ago, if Jonathan Swift published his modest proposal essay – where he said the answer to the Irish famine is to have them eat their babies. Yeah. He'd be accused of being a baby eater you know, by a lot of people. They take that at face value. And that's another kind of literacy that's being challenged by all these new forms. The willingness on, a, on social media to go after somebody for a single comment and try to ruin their careers is just breathtaking. And ho in a horrible way, this very distinguished professor is at some conference. He's in an elevator. And people are saying, what floor? And he uses the same joke everybody's used for 100 years. Seventh floor, ladies' lingerie. And now they want him literally to lose his career for being a sexist, I don't know what. Now, you know, part of what social media feeds is that kind of, what can I call it? It's, it's, it's lynch mob mentality it of is. a sort. And I have to be right, because if I'm not right then I'm not good. Right? Well, and those people yeah. that are fighting, those people that are coming back at you on Twitter, who knows what kind of education they have in that particular subject. Are we at the point where de Tocqueville was right? The internet has allowed the tyranny of the majority in this country? I don't know that I would be that. I, I, I guess, first of all, I think this is not the tyranny of the majority. This is the tyranny of various different minorities. Yeah. But I, I, I just think that if you go through the history of this country, we've had so many examples of taking wrong turns and going into periods of real political and, and social repression of one kind or another. So I'm not that kind of pessimist. I just think we have to give this a chance to breathe and see how this develops. I'm glad you've turned out to be something of an optimist because we're all sitting here going, woe is me. And it's refreshing to hear your take on all of this. And you do know, you know better. Uh, I once asked Ellie Wiesel, 
are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he said, I'm an optimist because I have to be. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, like that. The best way to I like that a lot. Thanks Thank you so much. Okay. You're great. Alrighty. Thank you, Thank Jeff. You. Joining us now is our producer, David Levin. Again, we have Gina, Judy, and Lynn. And wow, he was terrific, I thought. Yeah, what what really made me happy was that he ended on somewhat optimistic note. I mean, measured optimism. Because just going over all the material for this, my sense was of gloom and doom, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think what, what Jeff brings to the to the table is a breadth of knowledge of not just the current media landscape, but how we got here. Um, and his way of looking at it is the glass is half full. I got the sense that what he wanted to do was to make sure that we understood that good journalism and the true stories will out, that people do want the truth. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the the optimism that he had really was that this is something that has happened before in media and out of the ashes of what we used to with Walter Cronkite and the, and the old, you know, tons of uh, newspapers. Now we have tons of media outlets that and are citizen different from, and citizen journalists. And maybe the, you know, some small journal can't pay for someone to go to the Congo to do a big story, but some guy can go there himself and do the story there. And maybe it's just going to change where we all can give our views differently. Well, I'd like a little of what he's having. <laughs> because to be honest with you, I think that there may not be a public demanding that kind of information in the future. But that's just me. I'm a glasses half empty. Well, I was going to say, but maybe the younger generation does. Maybe they they are out there trusting each other rather than people that are far behind a screen that they have never met. Well, that's the premise of Vice. And the same, by the way, and the same people who are now running for Congress, who never would have thought in a million years that they would run for Congress, can get into journalism or do stories, or do those local stories that the local papers are not covering. Um, Who's going to pay for it? Well, that's the thing. People are going to have to do it themselves. And there are people out there who want to, who just will do it because they want to well, but somebody's got to pay for it if they can't afford to do it. I mean, I, I'm here. I am. But I think that the mm-hmm. I think that the that's what we're talking about. These ad dollars are going to be so different. You know, maybe some group will pay the guy to go live in the Congo for six months instead of having him on the payroll for thirty years. Right. I think you're going to have to have sponsors um, because there aren't going to be institutionalized networks for people no. who want to do whatever they want to do, as there were in our day, Judy. Yeah. Do you think that? The reason podcasts have become so popular that people really do hunger for information yes. that they're not getting from traditional media. Absolutely. Absolutely. And on that note, <laughs> hopefully you'll get some from us. My only last point, I did not know that de Tocqueville wrote about the internet. Uh, there you go. <laughs> you learn something new story. every day. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This has been the News Broads with Judy Licht, Lynn White, and Gina Cerrito. Special thanks to our producer, David Levin.